Hey everyone, it's Rachel, and I just want to let you know that we are aware that the buzzing sound issue that we've had on a couple episodes is still a little bit of a problem in the introduction to this episode, but I don't want you to think that we don't know and we are working on it. It's on my end, it's my microphone, so I'm going to work on fixing that, and the buzzing decreases uh, during the interview, so you'll only have to deal with it when we're talking before our guest Madison speaks. So thanks for hanging in. Hopefully by next week, it will be all back to good. Thank you so much. WTF Power. 20,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, Ph.D., and our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be sitting down with Madison Van Oort, a Ph.D. candidate that studies fast fashion. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the Internet? Rachel, I'm just really glad you asked me that because today I would like to tell you that you can find us in select places. And let me list those off for you. First, uh, as always, your favorite podcast application. Maybe you found us using that application today. You get extra FKJ points if you leave us a review on iTunes. Please do that. Also, on the social media tip, we have a very active social media life that you should check out. We are on Instagram otherwise known as The Gram. We're on Facebook. We have a page that you can just like, or you can join our closed community group, which is Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power. We also have a Twitter account. We have on the Fi a mixtape that is titled Feminist Killjoys PhD Mixtape. And I'm going to pause my spiel. Rachel, for people who struggle to find the mixtape, is there a trick to finding it? Let me tell you a secret. So we had a wonderful listener tweet at us to ask us how to find it. And uh, I sent the link. And I swear to you, this this playlist has been public the entire time. But for whatever reason, when I went and looked at it today, it suddenly became it had been unpublished. So if you've been looking in the somewhat recent, somewhat recently, somehow it became unpublished. So Right now it's back to public, and so you should all you should have to do is type in Feminist Killjoys PhD okay. mixtape. Um, it's called Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape, so that could have been the issue. I feel like Spotify somehow made it unpublic, but it's back to public, so it it should be there shouldn't have to be a trick. You should just type that in. Okay, okay. I just wanted to check. Yeah. Yep. Great. So moving on, if you want to support us with money, you can do that in two ways. One, we have a Patreon account where you can become a Patreon. And if you donate $5 or more each month, you get access to our bonus episodes. And we need to record a Bachelorette episode real soon because some stuff happened that we would like to discuss. And then there will be other things coming up. Um, And then you also get access to our, every Patreon gets access to our awesome newsletter that Rachel puts together and I help with and that is called the Killjoy Review, but you would get that in your email box. And then, as always, if you'd like to email us back in 2005, you can do so at fkj.phd at gmail.com. I'm going to ask you, Rachel, a very specific thing that has to do with our email and social media. You had put out something about a rec- an, an episode that we are going to record in the near future with our feminist pals. Would you like to talk a little bit about that with our listeners and, and let them know how they can contribute to that? Yes. So if you are a listener of the show, you're probably familiar with our friends of the podcast, Lacey Davis and Molly Woodstock, both who are also feminist podcast creators, and they will be joining us on a feminist roundtable panel of sorts that will be airing both on FKJ and Flex Your Heart Radio, which is Lacey's. I'm not sure if Molly's planning on airing it for Smash Everything or not, but we'll be teaming up. So it'll be four amazing feminist podcasters 
talking about questions that you all send us. So we've already had some questions roll in on our Facebook community, but basically you can ask us anything that you think you're interested in our opinions about. So if you're listeners of this show, you, you sort of know what Melody and I are interested in in terms of research and hobbies and etc. For those of you who don't know Lacey or Molly, you can look into what they do, but I, I have a feeling many of you do know what, what they're into. And just ask us whatever, and we'll talk about We'll talk about the questions on air. We'll answer them. We'll riff off of each other. So I think it'll be really fun. And that'll be, we'll be recording at the beginning of August. So we would like the questions within this next like week so we can reflect on them. Thank you. And then just one other FKJ related pitch. We've gotten some, the feedback that we get is very positive and we love getting the emails. But something that I've noticed a pattern of is that people often say, I'm glad this exists because I don't, I can't have these conversations in my world otherwise. And so it's just nice to know that, you know, there's other people out there that have our opinions. So with that said, we use social media a lot, but we don't often ask you as listeners to like tell other people about our podcast. And I'm sure a lot of you have. But if you haven't, you just, if you would just share the fact that this podcast exists with some people that you think might really enjoy it. We would love that. Uh, we just always like to build up our audience. And obviously, when friends tell friends about things, that's usually a very good sign that something is of quality and something that they would also enjoy. So if you could just let your friends know about it, that would be rad. To sort of go back to the idea that if you do, if you feel like you and we that is true, we get lots of messages that say how thankful people are because they can't discuss this with people. But if you tell your friends to listen, then you can start talking about the ideas we bring up on air with your with, with your friends. And then you can have friends who you talk about this stuff with. So I think that's what you were getting at. But I'm just making that crystal clear. Oh, you made. Um, yeah. Thanks for letting you did that full circle for me. I appreciate I sure that. Did. And then I would just because I like attainable numbers and goal setting, as we've talked about on air before. And I think we're at a place on our Instagram account, so we're over we're over a thousand on our Facebook page, not our group, which is fine because I don't mind that that's a little smaller. But our Instagram, we are hovering at six eighty nine right now, and I think we could get to a thousand people on our FKJP underscore PhD Instagram account. We both now post there. Melody now has access, and she does really fun stories, um, Instagram stories. Sometimes um, I occasionally do too. Uh, I do a lot of the posting, and it's I I love the gram, and you should follow us <laughs> if you don't already. So FKJ underscore PhD on the gram. Let's get to a thousand. I feel so NPR when we do goal setting. It's more like a, the um, phonathons, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I used old to love school. those PBS TV. Yeah, mm-hmm, I used mm-hmm. to love those. We, I used to watch those at my in my grandmother's living room. <laughs> Media. <laughs> I always uh, I would always get bummed out because that meant that my like program wasn't on. But oh, yeah. I also <laughs> <program>. thought. <laughs> thank you. Um, I also thought that the people that were answering the phones were like really cool because they'd all be in the background of the person like pitching for you to send in. And then you could literally see people like picking up the phone and answering. And I was like, oh, I want that job. That looks cool. They were volunteers. It wasn't even a job. They were just good citizens. Yes. Thank you. When the economy meant that people could volunteer more often than they can now. Also before the federal government slashed the budgets for PBS and NPR and then had to start taking commercials because they're like, they just couldn't like members just cannot give enough money to sustain those entities. (sighs) It's a dark time. It is indeed. All right. That's going to be like a whole rant. So we're going to just pause on that. And I will now ask you how you're doing in general. (laughs) Thank you for that question. I'm actually doing really okay because, as, again, longtime listeners know that I'm sort of not in full-time academic mode anymore, which means that summer is no longer, like, my break between when I work again. And so instead, summer became the ideal time to start hustling really hard, as I've talked about. But it means that my summer sad has been really kept at bay which is amazing. Grateful for that. So I I haven't been stuck in like deep summer blues because I've been really busy, which I'm not trying to glorify, you know, not trying to glorify busy. I'm not trying to romanticize needing to hustle under capitalism. But 
it has, for better or worse, been kind of better for my mental health, which is nice. I do hate the weather. The weather's been fucking terrible here. It's pushing 90 right now, and it feels hotter than 90, and that's gross. But I'm teaching lots of yoga, getting a lot of things lined up, wrapping up different projects, and also carving out time to work on uh, some more creative stuff that may or may not end up being money generating, but I kind of don't care because I'm really excited about a lot of the stuff that I'm working on right now. So I've been pretty good. How about you? I've also been pretty good. I was at that, the wedding that I was at last weekend actually went okay. I was worried because of socializing and Robert was like, mm-hmm. so you're going to come on a party bus with us after the wedding. <laughs> I am like with a bunch of people I didn't know. And it turned out to be totally fine. But I think it's because I could prep for it and like knew that it was happening because I was really going to go high during social hour and like emerge again after dinner because <laughs> mm-hmm. I was or <laughs> before dinner. So it went really well. I met some really cool people. Everybody was chill. It was fine. But you know how social anxiety works. It's always worse in your head. I stole a baby for a while. I gave it back. <laughs> yeah. So it was good. And it was actually in North Dakota. It wasn't in Minnesota. Do you remember oh. the, have you ever heard of the Fargo-Moorhead area? Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So Fargo's in North Dakota and then Moorhead's in Minnesota. And yeah, we were like it. staying in Moorhead the first night and then the wedding was in Fargo. So Anyways, I'm, like I said, I'm I'm knowledgeable about Wisconsin, and that's about it. So, um, but Moorhead is actually a really cute town. Like, it's... Cool. It was, it was very cool to, like, they had a street fair, and they had some cute... Well, one of the locals described it as, like, an Etsy shop, you know, but where yeah. you can go and, you know, I don't know how to describe those places. Kitschy arts and crafts, but for the younger generation... Right. Good coffee. Yeah, it was just, it was cool. It wasn't as blah as I thought it was going to be. And then the wedding was awesome, and Robert did a good job officiating the wedding. And you looked fierce. Thank you. I had makeup on. <sighs> yes, and a dress. Thank you. very you. fabulous. You always look fabulous. You don't need makeup and a dress to look fabulous, but you looked especially fly. Thank you. Sometimes yeah. I do put the makeup on. It's fun. It's fun mm-hmm. to do it. Although lipstick is just so annoying, because you always have to put it back on yeah it's worth it no yeah it looks cool it looks cool i just like just me as a person like do not want to put in that effort every single day so i just do it i just do it sometimes so that's me because madison has much more interesting things to say than (laughs) than our i I do yeah i'm not gonna speak (laughs) for you she has more interesting things to say than anything I just talked about. Yes. Yes. Let's get to Madison. And I, I have to say, I've loved every guest we've ever had on, but this interview might be my number one favorite just because I nerd out so much about discussions of labor and resistance. And I just think her research is so fucking cool. And I could have talked about it for another three hours. I'm really excited to share this. Do you want to say anything else about it before we introduce her? Just that she talks with us. I mean, well, let me do the bio. Can I say the bio? You mm-hmm. always get to do the bio. I want to do the bio. Please, please. Maybe I did the... Did I do the bio last week with Jen? Yes. So then I'm lying to you. <laughs> no, you're right, though. I mean, I, I often am like, let me just say the bio without even asking. So take it Yeah, away. rude. Okay. <sighs> I thought we were co-hosts, not... <laughs> Okay, anyways, uh, so Madison, who we spoke with, we know her, we met her through the University of Minnesota, where she is currently a PhD candidate in the sociology department. And so she studies labor, worker surveillance, and the politics of resistance. And she's actually writing her dissertation on fast fashion retail work. And so as she will explain, fast fashion is like Forever 21 kind of stores. There's many more that uh, she will reference. This interview, I especially like because she worked in the spaces that she studied, which I think is totally kick ass and reminded me of a lot of other journalists that have done similar work to get, you know, kind of a, a deeper reach into a story. I should clarify, she's not a journalist, but sometimes I feel when I like I was doing my dissertation, it's very journalistic because you have to like interview people and and she is kind of a journalist because she takes her scholarship and makes it public like for mask magazine for that's example, true which we that talk about at length so she publishes in non-academic public spaces too true that okay so that is all i just wanted to say just that she talks about the politics behind forever 21 and how it impacts workers and not just forever 21 what are other ones i don't i don't shop at these places so 
Um, Places like Zara, H&M, Forever 21. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then she she talks about two locations that she worked at. How about we... Just go there. Them talk about it themselves. Yeah, I'm just gonna doodaloot us out of here. Perfect. Can I tell a quick funny story though? Of course. Super fast. <laughs> it's about the doodaloots. So, friend of the podcast who we love so much, Janie, who's been a longtime listener and fan, and we just adore her. Uh, and postcard writer. And postcard writer. She's just fabulous. She reached out to say that she could help with the queer body love transcriptions, but I but she didn't make clear what she was if she meant queer body love or she just said I can help with transcribing. And for a second I was like, Do you mean transcribing FKJ episodes? And so I said that. I said, Do you mean queer body love or do you mean transcribing FKJ episodes? And she was like, Oh, well I meant queer body love, but I, I also maybe FKJ. I just don't know how I would how would I transcribe Melody's Wayne's World out transitions? And so we had a laugh about the onomatopoeia of the Wayne's World transition oh that's that's money yeah it was really precious so that reminds me of the times in which i have interpreters for people who are hard of hearing in my classes and i make weird noises and then i just turn to the interpreter i'm like i'm sorry like how do you even i'm really sorry to mean to like set you up to fail there but i don't know how you interpret it that but uh yes uh so, so yes i'm aware that a lot of my language is uninterpretable but hopefully we will f- one day find a way. You know, people of a certain generation, if an ASL person said, that Wayne's World sound, when they make this hand motion, people would be like, ah, yes. Yes, I know yes, it well. Yes. You yes. know? Mm-hmm. But a lot of our listeners still don't know what that means. And if our listeners still haven't seen Wayne's World, like, get on that. I can't help you. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have I, no, we have, yeah. I just can't. Okay, one one other reason you should watch it. They sing the Queen song, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, in full in the movie, yes. in a car, and then they go and they go to a donut shop and then they run into a pig, or sorry, a cop. <laughs> <laughs> do you smell bacon? I certainly do smell a pig product of some sort. <laughs> Oh, that was no, that was a Freudian slippery thing <laughs> I just did. Seriously, yeah, that movie is so solid. Okay, everybody should watch it. We have been yammering. We need to get to this interview stat. All right, let's go, Garth. So thank you, Madison Van Ort, for joining us. So we. Uh, like you as a as a human person and we also really are interested in your work and so that combination made you a perfect guest for today so can you just very generally tell us more about your projects your dissertation what you've been working on and spending your life researching and doing sure uh first of all thanks so much for having me i officially am a phd student in sociology at the university of minnesota My research generally focuses on work and labor, surveillance and resistance, and my dissertation project has been an ethnography of fast fashion retail labor. So past couple of years, I worked undercover at a couple different fast fashion retailers in New York City. I interviewed about 20 workers, and I spent a couple years volunteering with a retail workers advocacy group in New York City. And so part of what I'm interested in is how fast fashion, and so this is part of the retail industry that is focused on speeding up how quickly it's able to produce trendy, cheap clothing, impacts people who work inside the stores. So there's been a huge and much needed increase in attention to this part of the industry by journalists. So we've seen a lot coming out based on the really horrific conditions of people who work inside the factories, who make the clothes, Um, on workers across the supply chain, but what we really know very little about and what there's virtually no academic attention to is how this industry is also reshaping life inside the stores. Thank you. Thank you for that awesome overview. And now we're just going to ask very detailed questions about everything you just explained. So my first question actually is just more of a curiosity question. Like, how did you get interested in this project in the first place? Um, I was hoping you would ask me about that. I had been 
thinking for some time about how to do a project related to fashion. It's always been something I've been semi-interested in, even though I don't consider myself a particularly fashionable person. And so it's been in the back of my mind for some time, but I've considered myself more of a work and labor person. And then when I was in New York City, I was teaching at a community college in Manhattan, and several of my students worked in retail there. And there was one student in particular who was consistently coming to class really late, really disheveled, clearly stressed out. And as I chatted with them, I learned that he worked at Forever 21 in Times Square, where he had been up until 4 a.m. the previous night working. And I had no idea that these stores would require their employees to work so late. And as it turns out, that particular store is open from 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day and has workers laboring around the clock 24 hours a day. And this was also in the fall of 2014, which is when the Black Lives Matter movement was really taking off in New York City as well as across the country. And so on top of that, the student was also telling me that he was scared to go to work because he thought there would be quote unquote riots in the store. And now of course there weren't actual riots in the stores, but there were several protests, die-ins, various actions in these spaces. And so I realized that fast fashion is a really important space right now to talk about all of these really complex questions about capitalism and precarious labor that no one seems to be paying that much attention to. And so I think this topic has been kind of ignored by both activists and academics for various reasons, not least of which is because, you know, fashion is considered a feminized sector, um, you know, relegated to the province of preteens, as I say in my essay, when in fact, it's really serious political and analytic site. So could you just elaborate a little bit more on on the um, connection between fast fashion and the racial justice protesting that was happening? There are different ways I think we could make that connection. So across the country, in New York City, in Minneapolis, in L.A., protests related to the Black Lives Matter movement were going into these spaces. They were having die-ins. They were having protests outside the stores. And while I didn't see a lot of explicit kind of dialogue around the connections, I think the fact that protesters' bodies were in and around those spaces were kind of making the connections clear between precarious labor, between informal labor, these economies where precarious proletarian Black people had been targeted for police violence. And so I think fast fashion companies are involved in the ongoing gentrification of cities. And of course, those sites are also sites of police cleaning up the street life outside the city. And so, of course, when we think about safe for whom, it's always safe for shoppers, but not for people of color. I know Melody and I are both really curious about your methods of sort of undercover ethnographic research. I don't know if that sounds too glamorized or whatever, but could you tell us more about your decision to work in these spaces? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, I, going into the project, had no intention of being undercover. I had presumed that as a sociologist working with the university, that the Institutional Review Board, which is the academic sort of ethics board that all researchers have to go through, would require me to be overt and would require me to out myself in the application process, in the job process, and with my coworkers. However, as I talked through the project with the review board, they actually brought up that because I'm dealing with an already kind of precarious population, because these workers are already subject to being fired or being let go, that if I were to out myself, first of all, I likely would not get access. There's no real incentive for managers to let me work at these stores. And then second of all, if I were to say out myself only to my coworkers and not to my managers, and then it came out that I was doing this research, there could be negative consequences for the people that I worked with. So we all agreed that it would make most sense for me to, first of all, gain access, and second of all, to protect the people with whom I was working to be undercover and to not tell them about my research. Of course, there were a lot of ethical considerations involved in that, and that was one of the reasons why I did not work at either of my sites for a very long time. I worked at 
one store that I call Talia's for about a month and I worked at another store that I call Spark for about six weeks. And on top of the fact that the work was terrible, I hated it, it made me completely miserable, it, I also felt like by the end of that research period, I was beginning to know the people that I worked with in a somewhat intimate way, and it just felt like the time to sort of take some space from that so I didn't get into super exploitative relationships. Did you read the piece by Shane Bauer and Mother Jones when he did Undercover? Well, not even explicitly Undercover, but he worked as a prison guard? I did. I read that several times, in fact. Some of the stuff is sounds very similar, like that you didn't, uh-huh. like how he just applied and no, and he used his real name and nobody clearly searched for him on the internet. But do you feel like you had similar experiences or feelings as he did? I do. Yeah, I remember reading that piece when I was first going into the field and in fact sort of modeling some of my uh, research methods based on how he went about his project. So like you were saying with the background, I didn't hide anything about where I was coming from. I told everyone that I was working with that I was a teacher, I was a graduate student, that this was summer work for me, that I have been a regular shopper at these stores for most of my life, that I know what these stores are like and therefore would likely be a good worker. There was one store that I do think searched for me and perhaps didn't hire me because of what they found. I did see one of the, you know, Google Scholar search results where someone had Googled my name and it was in the location of where I was applying for a job at the time. And so I think that was the only instance in which my background might have actually impeded me from getting a job. But in all other respects, it did not. And in fact, I think, of course, you know, white privilege and having a sort of middle class affect and aesthetic really privileged me in very real ways in the application process. One way that I did also resonate with Jane Bauer's work was the way in which he just totally became interpolated into the scene in ways in which he didn't expect. So when he was working as a prison guard, I remember him talking in that piece about how he ended up really taking on that role in ways that he didn't think was possible. And I found myself also being very concerned with being a good worker. I tried very explicitly to not be a good worker and I found it very difficult. You know, I wanted to see kind of how far I could push those boundaries, but it was hard because I was always sort of engaging at multiple levels. I was a researcher, but I was broke. I did need the job, I did need the money. So that identification was always a confusing situation and the boundaries were never clear. I know Melody and I both really nerd out about like feminist research methods and ethics and you know our positionality in spaces. It's so hard. I mean answering these questions and figuring this stuff out is really really difficult and uh, this is just more of I guess uh, like a logistical question but you, you just published an amazing piece in Mask Magazine which we'll definitely link to on our various platforms when we promote this episode. Yes let me make a plug a two or three dollar paywall And Mass Magazine has no advertising, so in an era in which it is nearly impossible to engage with media without advertising, I think Mass is a really special venue publishing really radical work from amazing thinkers. I agree. I really like Mass, and I probably should just suck it up and get a subscription. I endorse that as well. But um, it was a great piece, and in it, so you reference both your experience as a worker, but then you also interview folks, but then you also sort of reference conversations that you have with people, for example, in the break room. So my first question is those interviews, were those were separate and you actually identified yourself and interviewed people, you said in the US and Canada, was that the case that you were actually like, I am a researcher, please talk to me about this. And then the second one was, was that just totally okay that you were like, I'm going to quote this break room conversation, even mm-hmm. though this person didn't know that I was a researcher. How did this work? <laughs> Yeah, that's something that I thought a lot about. The interviews, when I call them interviews, were overt. I recruited people online, and so I advertised myself as a researcher looking to talk with people who had worked in fast fashion. And I told people that I interviewed that I had worked in fast fashion, so we had some rapport and some common ground to talk about. In terms of the conversations that I had with people in the break room, those were always kind of covert. So I never said I am researching right now, I'm quoting right now. But I try not to say anything that will 
undermine any of the people that I work with. And I think, at least in my IRB application and in how I conducted the work, I never felt like I was creating close personal bonds with people in a way that would be in what my mind is like clearly exploitative. So I think if I were to say become close friends with my coworkers to hang outside with them outside of work, develop these deep personal relationships and not tell them I was researching them would have been kind of a boundary that I wouldn't have crossed. But as I sort of set up the project and how I went about it was to sort of be aware of things that went on around me and document them, but not necessarily be trying to document people's personal lives as much as how these institutions operate and how they affect people within them, if that makes sense. So I think part of it for me was a political choice in terms of how I used my data. Yeah, thank you. That makes sense. So I just wanted to back up one second because I realized while we were talking, I think all three of us know what the issues are with fast fashion, both environmentally and worker-based. But Madison, Mm -hmm. for people who aren't really familiar with the term fast fashion, can you just explain what that refers to and also like what the just general issues are with fast fashion? Like why are you a killjoy with with these spaces? (laughs) So fast fashion includes stores like Forever 21, H&M, Zara that sell and manufacture, circulate, sell tremendous amounts of really trendy, really cheap clothing. And so they've been called out by labor advocates because they have been known the garment factories that make the clothes for really, really horrific conditions. Um, The Rana Plaza collapsed in Bangladesh a couple years ago, killed over a thousand people. There have been consistent incidents in factories in the global south in which people have been seriously hurt and killed. People have tried to protest these conditions at the factories with little avail and facing severe repression. There are also, of course, really serious environmental effects of fast fashion. So because fast fashion is cheap and it's accessible. It creates this culture and a world in which people are constantly buying stuff all the time. On the one hand, it's because they can, because it's cheap, but it's also because they have to. So I mentioned in my essay that as I was actually writing the Mask Magazine essay, I got on my bike and started to pedal my bike. And as I was doing that, my H&M jeans just tore completely across the thigh, which was not something I even thought possible. But it showed clearly how these clothes are made cheap and they're made to be thrown out. So it's obsolescence or whatever. But this creates a world in which people are throwing away huge amounts of clothing. The workers who who are making it are exposed to really disastrous chemicals. Greenpeace came out with a report about how the chemicals that are used to make the clothes are toxic, they're cancerous. So across the supply chain from manufacturers to, I would say, even people working inside the stores and the people who buy the clothes are exposed to these chemicals. Then we're just putting them back into the earth when we dispose of them. There have been other investigative reports documenting the ways in which secondhand clothing is a really terrible industry in itself. So fast fashion is just exacerbating the huge amount of clothing that's being shipped off to the global south in places that don't want the clothes, don't need the clothes. It's destroying their local economies. In pretty much every way, fast fashion is terrible. Not to say that the rest of the retail industry is great. It's not. It's all pretty terrible. But fast fashion is really the industry at its most monstrous, I think. So another thing that I really want to talk about that you reference in your mask essay and that I think you've you've sort of also maybe another mask article about the sort of everyday micro resistance by employees of the sort of small scale resistances that happen in these low wage jobs. It's something I've been really interested in as a person who grew up around people who had really shitty jobs who you know, would steal shit or vandalize or do these things to make sort of these really alienating existences feel like a little more livable. And there's a Robin D.G. Kelly essay that I really like that talks about this. So I was wondering if you could just speak to that more and maybe specifically speak to critiques sort of, I think, on the left about these sort of small scale resistances as being maybe meaningless versus like more organized change, you know, organized uh, resistance. 
I know which Robin Kelly essay you're referring to, and I love it. I think it's also a chapter in his book, Race Rebels, and it's just about, and you can add to this if you want, Rachel and Melody, if you've read it, but the ways in which any sort of working class history needs to take into account the ways in which people are always engaging in with these micro forms of refusal and how if we're really trying to understand these systems of domination and control, we have to always be documenting the ways in which people are undermining it in their everyday lives. And so that's something that I've just always loved throughout this project and something that I try to document in most of my work, first of all, because it makes me happy is so fun and funny and brings so much life to these spaces that are just awful and oppressive and ridiculous. On the one hand, I, as an academic, you know, see how like the logic of these systems includes these forms of resistance. Mm -hmm. And so critics would say it's never actually undermining or breaking down these systems. It's only sort of part of how they operate. And to a certain extent, I think that's true. But Also, you know, organized labor works with companies as well and also in other ways helps these sectors persist. So to me, I, I don't think there is a perfect answer to it, but I think that honestly, it's the only way that I could study something like this. It's the only way that I could keep going while I was working there. It's the only way that I can keep going while I'm writing about it is to talk about the ways in which people try to mess it up or fuck it up or make it more fun while they're doing it. Can you give an example of some of the the things that people have done in your that you've documented in your research? Yeah. Yeah. So, I encountered these examples even before I started working in these stores. So, when I was in my orientation for Talia's, they told me, for example, that one of the workers posted a photo on Instagram while she was working in the fitting room that said, supposed to be working, haha, hashtag time stealing. And (laughs) uh, this person happened to be followed by their manager. The manager saw it and subsequently fired the worker. And the worker is not supposed to have their phone out on the sales floor at all. So the fact that she had her phone out, posted this photo, and clearly was directly undermining what she was supposed to be doing was why she was fired. First of all, I wanted to find out who this person was and befriend them because that's amazing. But second of all, I was really interested in this term of time stealing, which I personally had not heard of until um, this example. Have either of you heard of it before, time stealing or time theft? Yeah, I have. I I can't remember the first time I heard it, but part of me thinks it was on the TV show The Office when they were like having HR come in and figure out, you know, that kind of thing. So, Uh yeah. Yeah, that's a a great episode. I highly recommend it to everyone. Um, I actually watched it after doing research more about this term. But so it's an industry term, but also a term that people have taken up on Twitter to doc or other social media to document the various ways in which they avoid doing work while on the clock. And so in contrast to, of course, all of these really widespread instances of wage theft in which companies steal wages or refuse to pay wages to workers when they are rightfully due, workers themselves are finding ways to sort of informally take back time for themselves. Now, companies see this as a direct threat to their profits and try to squash it in any way that they can, but workers consistently find ways to continue to do it. And I actually am going to be making a zine with my collaborator and comrade Jasmine Gibson about time stealing, where we collect various social media posts to sort of document the ways in which people are able to do this and share it with each other in this online community. Another example that was brought up during my orientation, which I also mentioned in the Masked Magazine essay, was one of my favorites, was of a worker who was caught stealing, and as she was escorted out by store security, blew kisses to her coworkers. And I just thought that was so amazing that not only was she brave enough to steal from this employer that likely exploited her, but that she had the audacity to blow kisses to her coworkers on her way out. I, I really love that example. It, it feels very outrageous to me that somebody, whether there's a rule or not, would get fired for one social media post on their job. As we know, 
many workers in this country are on their phones constantly throughout the day at their jobs. And then it just started to get me thinking about all the like ridiculous rules that low wage workers have to follow. Like just did they just seem almost infantile, like what what workers have, what rules they have to follow being paid Mm -hmm. so low. And so I guess that's just a reaction to my to your comment or your example. I don't know if if you have anything to add, but it's like, let's also just like stop for a moment and think about how ridiculous it is that a low wage worker gets fired for something that simple. Absolutely. Something that I've thought a lot about throughout this project is how people tend to think about how technology operates differently for white collar or middle class workers versus lower class workers. And there's an assumption that for professional white collar workers, technology is something that allows work to spill over into their personal lives. Whereas for hourly workers, for low wage workers, supposedly that doesn't happen as much. But these examples in which the workers are fired or disciplined for what they're putting on the internet shows how in this moment, those boundaries are in many ways blurring and that people are being subjected to the discipline of corporations and of their employers, even when they're off the clock. Yeah, I have so many places I feel like we could go with this. I'm just I'm thinking of an anecdote from my mom who works at a restaurant folding silverware into napkins and that's that's what she does at her job. And that's that's all she has to, to do. And it's, you know, horrible and mind numbing and, you know, inflames her arthritis and all of these things. And she was talking one day about like the very sloppy job that some of the other silverware rollers do. And I was like, Mom, you don't you don't have to do a good job. Like they don't pay you enough to do a good job. And she was having a lot of trouble with that because, and I, so this, I'm, I'm getting to a question here because you talk a little bit about age. And although the workers at Talia's, which you reference, are not as not as young as people might think, you know, they're into their 20s, maybe even a little older. I'm wondering if they're, and this could be just totally a tangent and off what you're interested in, but I'm wondering. I struggle a little bit with the difference in wanting people to find value in their labor as human beings who are trying desperately to not feel like their lives are meaningless versus literally giving zero fucks about something that is ultimately alienating. Because I feel like for some people, and the union movement does this too, right? It's talking about hotel cleaners as having a lot of having a lot of pride in the work that they're doing, you know, and you'll see, see that in a lot of union campaigns. So I I don't know if there's a Super clear question there, but does that sort of, Mm -hmm. what I'm getting at, make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been a tension that I've encountered throughout my work and throughout my volunteering with the retail advocacy group. So on the one hand, especially when you talk about the Fight for 15 movement, of course, people are saying that these workers, whether in fast food restaurants or in fast fashion stores, are merely young people doing a summer job who don't deserve to be paid more, don't need, quote unquote, good jobs. First of all, I don't think it's true. Obviously, everybody should be entitled to those things. But some of the workers, a good portion of them are older. They have caretaking responsibilities. Often young people also have caretaking responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, these assumptions that we make about these workers are simply not true. But it is a very real concern and issue that these jobs are seen by the workers themselves, often as merely stepping stones to other jobs. And so that impacts both how they view their own work, but also how they view, you know, potentials for organizing. So part of what unions or other workers groups do is try to sort of show workers how they can take their job seriously as sites of dignity, but also as sites of resistance. Yeah, I can imagine that would be attention for sure. And I think that's something that comes up and shows some some of the differentiation within the fast fashion industry itself. So for instance, if you take a store like Zara, which there aren't many of them in the Midwest, but they are becoming more common in Minneapolis. There's one at the Mall of America. People were talking about replacing the old Macy's with a Zara. But one of the things that sets it apart from say Forever 21 or H&M is that the workers are paid a little bit more, at least in New York, starting wages higher. And they also wear a uniform. They wear a suit. Mm. They wear all black. And so it sets them apart from the consumer base in a way in which the other stores do not. At the other stores, there's much more of a sense that they are casual workers, that nobody knows who you are. You are literally anonymous, very difficult to tell apart from anybody else coming into the store. The wages are 
started lower than at Zara. And so there's a way in which from the very beginning, workers are trained to not take themselves seriously as workers. And that's something that other scholars of retail labor have said of other parts of the industry as well. It's a kind of a classic strategy to try to specifically cultivate a workforce that identifies more as consumers, as shoppers of these stores, and therefore they won't come to identify as workers or assert their rights in the workplace. So I was just going to shift our conversation a little bit back to the role of your work in, in academia. And so all three of us, I think something we have in common is that we do work that is perhaps controversial, pushes some boundaries, goes against the status quo for sure. And so we were just curious your thoughts on, you know, having some some pretty radical politics, doing some pretty radical work um, all within the academy. Um, and, and so we're just curious what your thoughts are on that and, and how you see yourself growing or not growing in academia, given your project. But not only with your dissertation, but also like how you move on social media and et cetera. I would love to hear what you all think. It's a challenge for me. I don't know if I do it really well. I don't know if there is a right way to do it. Clearly, we've seen people be punished for putting their politics out there. That's a challenge that I have struggled with. And I think one of the first things that I've realized I needed to do is to create work for multiple audiences. So that's one of the reasons why I enjoy writing for venues such as Mask or the Verso blog or these other venues because, first of all, people will actually read it. As we all know, academic writing often has a very small audience. And so I figure, at least this way, some of my friends, some of my comrades will read it and they will help me think about some of the consequences of the things that I've been thinking a lot about for a world outside of the ivory tower. And that's really important to me. I also produce some work anonymously. So I do contribute to other venues in ways that are aligned with my politics, but don't necessarily need to be attached to my name. And I think, honestly, that's just a good practice as an academic, because I think so often in this moment, even if you're not an academic, anything that you create online when it's attached to your name is attached to this sort of personal brand that you're creating, right, whether intentionally or not. So I think it's good practice to think about what it means to create work that isn't attached to your brand. Other than that, I think simply taking this work seriously in academia as a job in itself and trying to think about how to organize around and within it is something that I try to push myself to do every day, not often successfully, but I would love to hear what you all have to say. I guess my concern about the work that we all do is um, it often gets rightfully so thrown into like leftist liberal spheres. And what concerns me the most is internet trolls that can find you and just decide that you're their next victim and just go to town and start calling your work. And I have moments sometimes, especially with this podcast, where I'm like, man, if the wrong person hears this, it'd be so easy to take something I say out of context and start smearing me on the internet because they decided that I was like the next feminist in line to get internet shamed. Although I wouldn't get shamed. That's just like their attempts, right? So it's very hard to control that. And the one thing that I have in my back pocket is that I'm luckily in a union. And so there is some protections that I would have more than other people in academia that aren't tenured. So I'm untenured, but I do have a union. And so that is really just kind of not forcing me to have like an anxiety attack thinking about it. It's like, well, I always have my union. So that's kind of where I'm at now, given my job. How do you feel about it, Rachel? Uh, also scared. And I would argue that they wouldn't have to take what we say out of context. They could have it entirely in context. And when we're saying things like fuck the police, that's we're not. That's, <laughs> that's what we're point. saying. Um, so I am actually saying fuck there. the police. <laughs> it is worrisome. And my colleague, Mish Zimdars, was is the person who was the the bore the brunt of all the she she did the fake news Google Doc and that sort of blew up. And she's been you know, death threats, things saying horrible things about our school that I used to work at with her got tons of calls. So I got to sort of witness that up close and personal. And it was, you know, awful for her, incredibly mm -hmm. awful. What's interesting for me, I think, in this moment is that I just lost my full time academic job and I'm actually considering life outside of academia and feeling 
really, really liberated by that. That said, I also created this like new pen name that I'm starting to write under just in case I want to like do the kind of work I want to do now and then go back and have my sort of safe old name and, you know, only Mm tell my members that I'm doing this under this name or whatever. So, but I, but I do have to say, you know, for better or worse, it's actually been really free to be like, I'm just going to fucking post this on Twitter and who cares? I don't have a job right now. (laughs) So great. Because it, you know, more and more, whether it's the professor at, I think it was Trinity that posted, he just reposted the Son of Baldwin piece about how that black lesbian security guard should have let that conservative guy playing baseball, I forget his name, get shot. Did you guys see that piece? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, no, but just that he should, she should have just let him die. Yeah, that basically the crux, it was like a very, you know, it was very, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Intentionally sort of evocative piece saying, you know, don't next time don't stand in the way like just let mm-hmm. bigots die basically um. and, a, and a professor like reposted this article just as like sharing it like here is and son of baldwin is I, I love that media producer who they have a facebook page and also write things sometimes and that person just got crucified and then also somebody i follow on twitter who i'm just astounded by what he posts george um i don't know how to pronounce his last name do you know who i'm talking about yeah. madison yeah he's I fucking love his Twitter, but I'm like, holy shit, he does not hold back. And obviously there is privilege in that in having, I think he's, I think he's tenured. That that just goes to the question that we all know in terms of job security and then, you know, waiting for tenure and things like that. But even then, I mean, people with tenure have been fired for similar things. Like the person who got in the way of the, was it the anti-anti-Black Lives Matter protesters or the pro-life protesters? But there's just so <laughs> many cases of people being, and uh, Melissa Click. Uh, yeah, there's just like case after case of people using what professors post on the internet. And it just seems like it is a uniquely targeted profession. And so it's scary. It's a scary time to be a professor with left wing politics. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if I'll ever figure out how to feel comfortable on Twitter. Honestly, I have my Twitter currently private. Sometimes it's public, sometimes it's private. But, you know, honestly, I've mostly used it to follow political actions or when something politically interesting is happening. So a lot of what you'll see me retweeting looks like riot porn. It's not Mm -hmm. a sort of curated, only professional academic speak, which unfortunately I feel like if you're an academic on Twitter, that's sort of how you're expected to engage. And I find that really kind of limiting and oppressive in its own ways. But what you were saying earlier, Rachel, about your pen name was reminding me that these struggles that feel in some way super unique to this moment and to this time period are also just sort of consistent struggles that people um, who consider themselves radicals have always sort of dealt with and come up with methods to sort of protect themselves. So like creating a pen name is obviously has a long history on the Mm -hmm. left. Another good method is to have two Twitter accounts like I have where I do like so Madison, the stuff that you were just explaining on Twitter, Uh I have like my personal account and it literally says personal account and it's not linked up to like my real name. And then I have like a professional one that I that my students can see. And then so on that one, I just like repost like journalism stuff and media stuff. And it'll do I'll do race and gender things, but it has to be within like a media analysis framework, which is not very hard for me to find. So that's how I've managed it because I've had some really just I wouldn't say embarrassing but like I didn't want to go through these moments with students finding my social media and so that's why I have fake names everywhere and it's really to protect myself and to give myself a little bit of freedom but I know that I know every time I post something on the internet it can get screenshot and connected back to me at any time I also like to be cliche like have free like the freedom of speech and can like say these things um it's just the the war against liberal professors or whatever we're like right in in the midst of it and so that's i think why we're tiptoeing a little bit more i'm sure other people would be like fuck that you know just say whatever you want and but do you really want to go through that whole mess as we've seen our right. colleagues do you use the liberal and square scare quotes right melody oh yeah because that's what they call okay. the call right. us okay. right i don't just, know what just they call, clarifying social justice warriors <laughs> i don't know whatever they call right. us yes right snowflakes, whatever, whatever. Yeah, just two short follow-up questions. One, you've kind of hinted at this, but what do you see, what what do you want this work to do for society? That's kind of a big question. And then also, if people are interested in reading more about your stuff, I know you mentioned the mask essays, but are there other things that people could search for online or that we could link to that you think people should check out? 
So I'll start with your second question about the links. Um, so I have two essays up at Mask Magazine. They are behind a very small paywall, but I do think that it's worth it to have access to the rest of the publication, which is really fabulous. Um, a lot of the work on Mask isn't behind a paywall for the record, so do check it out in any case. I also have this chapbook coming out that I mentioned with my collaborator, Jasmine Gibson. That won't be out till next year. But then other than that, my academic work on this project as of yet has not come out because as we all on this podcast know, um, oftentimes academic work can take quite a long time to get out in the world. So it is not out there yet, but I do hope it will be out there soon. And your prior question, it kind of relates to much of our conversation about research ethics. And I think going into this project, I knew especially as someone who would be, you know, taking a job from someone else who could very much use it more than I could, I knew that I needed the work to be politically engaged. And so that's why on the one hand, I spent a lot of time volunteering with a group in New York City. You should check them out. They're called the Retail Action Project. They do really great work organizing retail workers across the industry, part of the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union. I also just try to kind of use it as a way to make connections that aren't often articulated. So with the Black Lives Matter movement, sort of showing that this is you know, a really important site of struggle, even outside the sort of organized labor movement related to the fast fashion industry. So just trying to kind of signal boost different forms of resistance that might not be given attention in mainstream venues. That was all so, so good to talk to you about all of those things. Um, Like I said, we've long been excited about the work that you're doing, and we really appreciate your time. If you're up for it, we'd love you to join us for our final segment, which is very low, low pressure, but we end the show talking about what we are reading, watching, and listening to this week. Melody, maybe you could start us off. So, hello, I'm Melody. It's good to be here. I am reading as many articles about the Russia, trigger warning, the 45th will be mentioned. Um, Russia is your keyword. I've just been trying to stay up to date, I guess, on what's going on with Russia and Trump. Have you two been following it at all? Are you in like a no 45 news media access world? Not as closely as I should. Okay. I just like the Russia stuff just... The, the, The short answer is I've been reading the bare minimum. Because... It is absurd and ridiculous if there is, like, covert Russia things happening. But I'm also just, like, I'm actually, like, less incensed and appalled by that than other things. And I just, uh, I don't know. I just feel like it's, like, a, a, a different version of but her emails. I mean, I know it's not. I know emails in Russia are not the same thing. I 100% know that. But see, that's why, like, that's why you should be pissed, though, because... Donald Trump spent all this time grilling Hillary about secret emails and his own son had emails <laughs> with like, right yeah so go so I don't mean to ramble you go ahead so no 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 and I'm not like trying to argue with you I'm just saying like no yeah I'm actually reading them to get myself more amped up and I think maybe some of it is because I'll speak for myself that I didn't know about I've always known that Russia is our quote unquote enemy but I didn't live through the time in which that enemy was created versus you know Saddam Hussein being our quote unquote enemy that I live through and so I can actually feel that and I have recollections of those conversations and I so I think that might maybe why I at least am not you know, full of rage until I start reading these articles and you start seeing patterns and you start seeing obvious just hypocrisy <laughs> to, to say it nicely about what what Trump has been doing versus what he was accusing Hillary of. And so I guess the last thing I'll say, and I'll just move on to the other letters in the acronym. But the one thing that's really sad in terms of my reaction is that this isn't going to put him under either. You know, it's just yeah. another and now this is just like a I mean, I don't even know if the best fiction writer could have even thought this up. This isn't even going to probably get him to go away, (laughs) which is just uh, unbelievable. And so it's not like I'm not one of those people that's like, yes, we finally got him because we didn't. Right. He has some magic powers that I guess only white, rich 
men have and it's baffling so just like Madison said like the kind of idea of like I should you know I feel like it's a it's an obligation I guess to read about it um yeah that's that I was thinking about watching see this is hard for me because I recorded an episode like two days ago and I had to do an art of you all which requires me to watch more than one thing but I was thinking about watching the Lion King again even though it's problematic. Have you been noticing, well, Madison, you would probably know this, in the fast fashion world, Lion King symbolism coming back? Are you seeing that? No. Really? Tell me more. I don't know. I'm just seeing, and it's not the Broadway thing, because I know there was Lion King on Broadway, but I feel like Lion King's coming back. Really? Interesting. I heard the circle of life in the nail salon today. (laughs) Okay. Is that your your evidence? Yeah. Yes, that is my one. No. (laughs) No, I've just been noticing like younger hip people wearing like um, sweatshirts with Simba on them. Hyper color, like brand new shirts made with like the Disney icon. Yeah. And also just in the way in like when it came out, I think that was late 90s, right? Mid 90s, like kind of like a hip cool era to reset. I have seen some memes now that you mention it. Yeah. Now you're going to see. Now you're going to start paying it. Now you're going to see it. Yeah. Like right, yeah. good media scholars do, I point things out and then you notice it all the time. So, and then listening to, I'm going to take this time to reference something that Rachel said online about title because the Jay Z album's only on title right now, right? Yeah. And they, they hide albums often. If John, friend of the podcast, was here, he would tell you that title pays their artists a lot more money for their music. And so that is why we should support title and not be mad at them because they actually pay their artists significant amount of money more because it's yeah, our but i know they're owned by i know i know easy and beyonce just give those artists that money and I know. let us listen to it for free you remember there wasn't it wasn't that long ago where you had to go to the store and buy the 15 dollars version i know i know i know not to be a okay, feminist killjoy but so i'm listening to the new jay-z album on title do you like it i've only listened to a few songs it's pretty it's deep you know like there's a lot of res- yeah. Let me listen to it a little bit longer, just like I needed Kendrick for a couple weeks to really like respond to that. I'm just listening to stuff on title because I have a login. So, but that's hypocrisy well, on my behalf because I didn't pay for it. So, moving on, I'm done. Rachel, would you like to go? Sure. I'm reading. Uh, it's like a workbook called Many Moons. Uh, it's published by. It's called Modern Woman. Is the nom de plume this woman this person uses, and it's an amazing wooey taroty astrology e overview of the year from July to July or July to December rather and you just sort of have prompts and things you know little thing little activities you can do each each new moon each different cycle of the moon in each month and they plan it out um, in advance so you have your horoscope for each week and each moon cycle and uh, you have a little blurb about what each moon means and uh so i just finally started digging into it when i got back from portland and i just love it so much so definite plug for that watching my partner watches the golden girls a lot when he's like cooking or cleaning and so the series he made it through the entire entire series like in the past few months and the series finale was on yesterday as he was cooking dinner and so I just sort of stopped in the kitchen and like watched it with him on the iPad and I was just like sobbing because it was it's a pretty solid show and they did a lot of things that they were before their time in a lot of ways in terms of sexuality they talked about AIDS before any other TV show talked about AIDS and the sort of like lady friendship aspects particularly of older women I found quite moving on on this episode last night so I was having some tears and feels about about that and I've been listening to the new newish Beth Ditto album which is really 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 good um love Beth Ditto of the gossip and uh, the album's pretty solid so it's my roundup nice great Rex thank you for Mm -hmm. the inspiration I have been reading a lot of the articles about the J20 arrestees. So um, these are the people that were arrested at the Inauguration Day protests in Washington, D.C. And I have several friends who are caught up in that case. And I've just been trying to share those articles as much as possible. I've been really surprised how many people in my close circle 
have no idea what's going on, don't know that 200 people are facing over 70 years in prison. So I've been just trying to keep up with that. One of the defendants who took a plea deal, the only person to take a plea deal, was recently given his sentence. So I think people are just kind of waiting to see what will happen with the others involved. But it's an incredibly important case that I think Mm -hmm. everyone should be paying attention to because it's clearly just a way in which the state is trying to quash dissent. Mm-hmm. I've been re-watching, as I often do, Sex in the City, and mm-hmm. I stumbled upon the episode in season two, which I totally forgot about, in which Donald Trump makes an appearance. I don't know if you guys are Sex in the City viewers, but he makes a brief cameo, as he obviously has done in several TV shows and movies, to simply signify a rich New Yorker. So he doesn't even have a speaking line. He's just in the back of a restaurant dining with someone who Samantha tries to date. Um, wow. Another, another old rich man. Right. I've but watched that show so many times and I don't remember that, but I'll have to. It's the yeah. same episode where Miranda first meets Steve. So Aww, okay. it's redeeming in that <laughs> <Yeah>. respect, but <laughs> I I felt pretty grossed out to see him. Yeah. It, was, it was a sad moment for sure. Um, and then I've been listening to Alice Coltrane pretty consistently for a while now. She's a jazz harpist. She is what I listen to almost every night when I'm trying to wind down. She has a song um, that you can find on YouTube called Going Home that is just kind of excruciatingly beautiful. So if you want something that will chill you out, might make you feel some feels, I would suggest that. Awesome. Also a good list. Great. Mel, any last words? Just thank you so much, Madison, for taking the time to speak with us and tell everybody about your radical project. We're like, well, I can speak for myself. I'm a super fan of what you do. So thank you. Same. Same. Totally. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, and thanks also, as always, to Hard Copy Cartel for our amazing logo and WCF. Power, power, power.